This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure to be introducing this particular uh, event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, which is sponsored by Thompson Solicitors. Um, and those of you who saw me last week will be glad to know I remember my specs this morning. <laughs> Getting to the top of the political greasy pole is a tricky enough business for a relatively unencumbered man. But for a woman who's a wife and a mother, um, the occupational hazards are, are obviously multiplied. As is the number of critics anxious to undermine and increase, undermine you and increase self-doubt. Now, the criticism can sometimes come from your own sex. How can you possibly be a committed politician and a proper mother? To which the obvious answer is, how are you ever going to get a gender-balanced parliament if you exclude all mums? Yet our guest this morning also found a great deal of solidarity from working women for whom staying at home was never any kind of realistic choice anyway. She's not only had a long and very distinguished career in politics, but she's managed along the way to campaign vociferously and effectively on behalf of other women. She's not the kind of high-flying politician who's prone to pulling up the ladder behind her, eh, unlike some other female high-flyers whom I wouldn't dream of mentioning. <laughs> she's held a number of high offices, and twice when male party leaders have had a nasty political accident, she's taken over the leadership of the Labour Party for long enough for the boys to sort themselves out. <laughs> it's a matter of some regret to many women that she never attempted to parley that temporary role into a more permanent one, and perhaps we'll find out why in the course of the next hour. Please welcome Harriet Harman. Now we are, of course, Harriet, here to talk about your book, A Woman's Work, which is a fascinating insight into how things work and sometimes how they don't work. But there are a couple of stories in today's papers that we probably just ought to attend to first. Uh, the most important one of which I guess is Keir Stammer, um, the Labour Party spokesperson on Brexit, saying that the Labour Party has taken a position now that it wants to stay in the single market, stay in the customs union, at least during the transition period. So, discuss. Well... <laughs> Well, I mean, I, th I completely agree with um, what Keir's said today in his article in The Observer, but I'm just very sorry that we're in the position we're in. I mean, they described it as project fear at the time uh, when we were campaigning for Remain. And I used to think that actually we were slightly understating it in relation to project fear. And so it has turned out. Every single thing that they said was going to happen and was going to be simple and straightforward and beneficial has been quite the opposite. And I think that what um, Keir and Keir Starmer and Jeremy Corbyn have done by saying this is our objectives, you know, our objectives are that we should have vigorous trade relationships, our objectives are that we should be outward facing and integrated as part of Europe with people going backwards and forwards. The objective is that we should have plentiful jobs and a strong economy and then compare what the Tories are doing. I think that that's the way forward because obviously the difficulty is, albeit by a small margin, we lost the referendum. And if you've lost the election, which we did, um, albeit we made good progress in 2017, but we didn't win the general election in 2017 and we lost the referendum in 2016, 
you're in a, a tactical difficulty, but I think that actually pointing out all the things that they said would happen that are going to be the opposite is the, very, is the right thing to be doing. I'm I mean, interested that you bracketed Keir with Jeremy Corbyn there because, um, how shall I put this delicately, Jeremy's never come over as the most committed European. Well, I mean, he did, you know, he, the, the position of the Labour Party in the referendum was to remain. I mean, people said, you know, that he should have, some people said that he should campaign more vigorously for it. And there was certainly a lot of Labour Party supporters, a lot of Labour voters who didn't know what our position was, not least because some high-profile Labour MPs, I'm thinking of Gisela Stewart and Kate Hoey, were campaigning with Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. So people's Labour voters saw Labour MPs working with the Leave side and I would be knocking on doors and they, people would see my Remain label and they'd know I was Labour and they would be like puzzled. Oh, I thought we were for leave. So I, you know, that led to me actually even getting on the flipping bus with David Cameron, which is something which I thought I would never do. <laughs> that, is, that is the uh, Remain bus, not the pink bus. We wouldn't, we wouldn't let him get on that. Um, but, I and I think that actually, yeah. the, the, if there is a criticism to be made of Jeremy, it was that although his position was Remain, not enough people saw the blast of the fact that Labour was for Remain. And it was, you know, it was lost, but only by a narrow majority. But that presents us with a problem. I don't want to take up valuable book time, but, it, but it, a criticism could be made that although Keir Starmer is saying all these things this morning and seems to be broadly welcomed by other people in the party, like yourself, um, there has been a period where Labour spokespeople on, on high-profile programmes have been asked about the single market, asked about the, uh, the currency, uh, the, the um, customs union, and they've... they've they frankly haven't seemed to know what to say. Well, I think that they've just been focusing on saying what our objectives are. And obviously the, the negotiations are in the Tories' hands. So, you know, as, as you say, I think we're broadly all welcoming the fact that um, Keir is saying we should stay in the single market for, for the transitional period. I'd like us to be staying in the single market indefinitely. I'd like us not to be leaving the European Union. But, you know, we've got to inch our way forward. And I am just hoping that when people realise that we are going to have to pay in to the EU in order to be able to leave, because that is our international obligation that we've entered into, we were never going to be just able to walk away and pay nothing when we've entered into those obligations. We were never going to be suddenly able to produce £350 million for the NHS. You know, I'm just hoping that a lot of people will actually change their minds. You know. let's, let's very quickly just flag up another, uh, which is in the Scottish Papers today, which is suggesting, um, and I paraphrase of course, that there are certain people in, on the left of Labour in Scotland who want to have a kind of purge of what they see as, as Blairites. Now, I mean, you're familiar with purges and internecine warfare and splits and all of that because you've been in politics a long time. Uh, how do you react to this? Well, I don't think, I mean, this is a, a headline that's in one of the Scottish papers about, um, you know, a call for a, a purge of Blairites in Scotland. I don't think that, um, and there are similar calls in different parts of, of the rest of, of, you know, England and Wales, but I don't think that's generally where the party is. I think generally the members of the party, I'm sure there's 
many of you here, you know, want to get on with getting rid of the Tory government, with getting rid of the disaster that's happening now, and not arguing amongst ourselves. I think there was a broad level of consensus around the manifesto, and we made progress here in Scotland as well, which was incredibly welcome, having had such a big setback in 2015. And we're making progress all around the country. I don't think we need to be or want to be derailing that by arguing yesterday's arguments. Um, and I don't think that's where the vast majority of the party is. It makes headlines. Some people believe it deeply and will be calling for it, but I don't think it will be going anywhere. I mean, I don't think we'll be having purges of Blairites, nor do I think that um, we will be having another leadership challenge. I think we'll be going forward with you know, as much unity as we can muster in the face of a very difficult circumstance for this country. Well, let's, let's um, look at some of the, uh, uh, the major political episodes that you cover in the book. I mean, it's a, it's a very um, personal account, and it's not full of uh, political backbiting or any of that, but there are several bits of it where you talk about um, the difficulties of, of, of the Blair-Brown years because you watch them be incredibly close and watch them carve a plan together, if you like, forge a plan for their party together, and yet... Um, you see, I was never a Blairite, I was never a Brownite, and it, it saddened you greatly when they, when they fell out so spectacularly. Well, I think that, um, you know, we'd, it, it had been a terrible time under Margaret Thatcher. You know, public services had been completely ground down. Everybody was saying that the NHS was a completely finished model. It was a bottomless pit. We'd have to get rid of it, increase private... Uh, tax relief for private health care. Whole swathes of industry were being devastated. We have Clause 28 um, stigmatising gay people. I mean, you know, it was, it was grim and we kept losing elections. So above all, if you were in a constituency like mine with, with beliefs that I and many, obviously thousands and millions of other people had, above all, we wanted the Tories out, but we kept losing elections. And John Smith, I mean, Neil Kinnock did a huge amount to make the Labour Party more electable, to reach out to the people that we needed to win. And then, of course, we had John Smith being leader, um, who tragically um, died before he could lead us into a, a general election. And what Tony and Gordon did together with Tony as leader and Gordon as shadow chancellor was bring the party to a position where we could sweep into government with an overwhelming majority. If you, like me being an MP, where my constituents were literally dying on hospital waiting lists, you know, I wanted nothing more than to get the Tories out and therefore to see that incredibly productive, deep partnership, which was not only in the interests of the Labour Party, but in the interests of the country, was a fantastic thing, and that's why it was so sad to see them sort of break apart and sort of factions to arise. And I, you know, admired and still admire each of them enormously. I think both of them were political giants of their generation, and it was a shame that it ended with there being such a separation between you, the two you make, of them. You make um, the very interesting point that um, uh, Peter Mandelson could have been a bridge between them, but, but he didn't obviously conclude, you say, that that was necessarily in Peter Mandelson's best interest, so he didn't bother. Well, I do... Um, I do... I think that, that the job of advisers ought to be to, to help the project that the person they're advising go forward, not to... to to make themselves 
be central and uh, and you know be hyping up their own influence at the expense of the project and I you know that is my criticism I do allow myself and it's purely a personal view there's no like facts around this really but I one, yeah well um, that I felt that that actually he could have played a part in keeping Tony and Gordon together because he was very close to both of them and he didn't I mean there was one time when um, uh, well in fact when John Smith died and Peter Mandelson and I were walking along from the House of Commons back to our offices, which were next door to each other, just down down the way um, on the embankment. Um, and he said, oh, you know, um, who do you think should take over from now that John Smith has tragically died? And I said, well, you know, it's got to, it's got to be Tony. We've got to win seats in England. Um, and Tony's got that sort of, you know, morning TV sofa appeal. Gordon is, you know, he's kind of, he's, he appeals to people who are less, you know, political conference attenders. Gordon's a great, uh, is, is absolutely beloved in the party, is a great conference orator, uh, comes from our traditional heartlands. But actually, that's where we were strong already. We needed somebody who seemed more sort of English and uh, less political, if that you would like. Be because he went to and Fetis. that would be Tony Blair. I know he did go to Fetis. Um, so I said, in a nutshell, I think, you know, it's got to be Tony. You know, we've lost, we've lost, we've lost, we've lost. Next time, we have got to win. Everybody was talking about the Labour Party never being a party in government again, of being overtaken by the Lib Dems, God help us. Um, <laughs> It was that serious. So winning was like everything. So I said, well, it's, it's got to be Tony. And I said, what, did, what do you think? And he said, oh, I don't know. You know, I just, I just love them both. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was very odd because normally it wasn't difficult for Peter Mandelson to form a view. And actually my suspicions had been aroused by the fact that he'd asked me for mine, which was not a usual uh, thing for him. So... Um, uh, I think that I think that he wasn't sort of open and straightforward and bringing them together. I think that's. Let me take you back to that election victory in 1997 because you you had a, a huge majority, um, so you could have had a, a huge amount of power um, to do things. You did have a huge amount of power to do things, but um, both Gordon and Tony, I think. Uh, took the view that if Labour was to be regarded by the electorate as sound on the economy, they would, at least for the first couple of years, stick to the Conservative spending plans, which might have sounded fine, except that somebody like you wound up having to sell cuts and benefit cuts to loan parents. Now, that was, you know, a very, very difficult thing for somebody like you and a very, very difficult thing for something like the Labour Party. You went to Gordon and said, you know, this really doesn't compute. You went to Tony and said, this doesn't really compute. Both of them said you had to do it anyway. Do you regret that now? Oh, I mean, it was terrible. I mean, it was bad for me, but it, God knows it was much worse for lone parents who were having their benefits cut. I mean, to, to take us back, it was before the election. And again, we'd been losing, losing, losing elections. The public service had been ground down. Unemployment was, you know heading to three million it was absolutely dreadful and one of the things that stopped people voting for us and they said over and over again why in constituencies that we need to win stop people voting for us was because they thought we would shove up their taxes sky high and throw their money down the drain and therefore the question of our economic competence was absolutely 
central. We had to deal with the fact that people wouldn't trust us on the economy because however much they thought we were nice people and cared about public services, that actually they wouldn't give us their votes if they didn't trust us on the economy. So it was decided, and I fully supported this decision because I was so desperate for us to get into government, to say, OK, we will not increase taxes, the basic or the high rate of tax, for the first two years we're in government, and we won't spend more than the Tories have put in the public spending um, uh, framework uh, for the first two years. So you, you can be reassured that we're not going to suddenly get in and jump round and turn up, put up your taxes and waste all your money. And that, I think, was very important. When I was going round all these constituencies that we hadn't won for yonks, like Gloucester, like Stroud, like Dover, like Plymouth, that sense that we understood their concerns about us was very important on the doorstep and helped us get that huge landslide. So then we get in and then we've got to actually deliver on that. Now, not spending more than the Tories were going to spend in the health service or in education for two years was, you know, difficult, but it could be done by freezing posts or delaying projects and it didn't require any legislation. It was just a kind of pause until we then trebled the investment in health, which we did, and doubled the investment in education, which we did. But I was the Secretary of State for Social Security, and that is money which goes under legal entitlements to benefits, which are, you know, under, under the law. And therefore, for my department, sticking with the Tory spending limits meant cuts. And we couldn't cut uh, pensions because pension of poverty was the absolute biggest area of poverty at the time and we couldn't cut disability uh, benefits and what the Tories had already put in the programme was for new loan parents um, who, who were going on to benefits would get £6 less per week. Now actually loan parents were not getting a lot of money anyway so £6 less per week was really quite a big cut and basically I did say to Gordon, this is just not doable, it's wrong. But Gordon was saying, well, we've just made this manifesto commitment. We've absolutely promised. And if we break it, first off, as soon as we arrived in government, the money markets will pack panic, the pound will collapse, there'll be an economic crisis and we'll be out of government again. You know, is that what you want after all our years of campaigning to get into government? And I felt I couldn't second guess him. What I should have done is said, you are undoubtedly, Gordon, a complete genius, and the Treasury is a wonderful department, why don't you sort this out? And actually, I should have made it his problem instead of mine. And quite a lot of the time, I think that I've been too reluctant to, to actually say to somebody, well, this is the problem, you sort it out. Um, but uh, so I would advise you when you get to be a big into a big problem, get somebody else to sort it out <laughs> who's higher up the system. Don't take too much responsibility because because there are there's all kinds of areas in the book where you've been faced with a decision with which you're personally uncomfortable, but in the party's interests or the leader's interests, you've decided to go with the flow, as it were. And sometimes I felt that you um, there were times when you should have said, "Sod it, this is really not what I believe." Well, I mean, there were loads of times when we were saying sod it and we were pushing the boundaries and having huge arguments. I mean, like, for example, 
on women's representation. You know, when I was first in the House of Commons, it was 97% male MPs and only 3% women. And we were like, Labour is the party of women and equality. We have got to have more Labour women MPs. And we just couldn't get them in. And so we had this really wild and revolutionary idea that we would change the rules so that there would be at least one woman on every shortlist for a parliamentary selection and that there wouldn't be all-male selection, which is what there'd always previously been in most seats. And there was a huge backlash about that. You know, it was regarded as absolutely outrageous, but of course it didn't make any difference. So we then came back and said, well... Um, we want 50%. Huge rows, you know, men up in arms in the PLP, end of civilization as we know it. And, uh, you know, the 50% that were the men constantly got selected, nothing changed. So then we went for all women shortlists where we said, okay, in 50% of the seats which we hope to win next time, anybody can apply so long as they're not a man. <laughs> and that was like, you can imagine, that caused absolute fury. And as one of the people that was pushing that forward, and one of the very few women at the time in the House of Commons, I got it in the neck a lot. And in fact, there was one um, guy that said to me, you know, I have moved my wife and children to some godforsaken part of the country in order to be their MP. And now the MP's looking really ill, and I can't even apply. And you've ruined my life. And he literally said that. So I was having rows all the time, but sometimes I would think, oh God, I can't have this row as well. And that if you're trying to make change, people don't say, that's a great suggestion that everything should be completely changed. Yes, we won't do it the way we've done it in the past. We'll do it completely different. Thanks for the good idea. People who are in the system resist that change. And therefore, what's important to, to be doing enough pushing forward that you do make the change, but not so much that you just allow the system to completely expel you out of it. And I found that's what kept me awake at night, how much I could be having yet another row. Let me, um, let me, let me just put two addendums to that. The first one was when you, you... So you get a whole slew of women in the 97 intake, and you're going to get a photograph taken with all of these women because, hey, look, there's all these women going to be in Parliament. Parliament's never going to look as grey and male and pale again. And just as you're about to take the photograph, number 10 tells you that Tony wants to be in the picture. Well, the whole, the whole thing about the women's movement is it's about women, isn't it? It's about women together doing things. It's not about a group of women supporting a man. It's not a group of women under the leadership of a man. It's about, you know, women will be the engine of our own liberation. So... So the idea of the women, the photograph of women, and there was a hundred women in the Parliamentary Labour Party, and when I first started out, I was one of something like ten. I mean, this was a huge change. You know, remember what Parliament looked like and felt like at the time. This was a massive change. And we wanted to have this photograph so we could, like be there and all the other women in the country could see we were going to be there for them to really change things on childcare and domestic violence and equal pay and maternity rights. That's what we're going to be doing. And obviously Tony, you know, had been like pivotal in us getting so many MPs across the board. That can't be denied. But he's not a woman. And he was the Prime Minister. 
but he wasn't a woman. And it was quite difficult for me to, to say to number 10, which I did, um, this is, we, we don't want the Prime Minister. He's like the ascendant new Labour Prime Minister, but we don't want him in our photo. That seemed like quite hostile. Anyway, they didn't take any notice. They just did not get the idea that it was about women together for women. So we basically all stood on the steps of Church House and had our photograph taken with Tony in the middle. And the optical effect of that was it looked like we were all his supporters. And I remember that ancient musical, The King and I, where there's one of these songs, A Flock of Sheep and He the Only Ram. And I had that going round in my head as I stood there. He was like the Yule Brenner, and we were like the sort of, you know, the court all around. So, however, women all around the country did see that picture. You know, and if you were in a supermarket checkout... But the media branded it inevitably. Oh, they they branded it Blair's Babes. But they... They would, because it could safely be said that they did not get or sympathise with um, the women's project. And we were about changing politics so that it was represented women and men in the country. And women's lives had completely changed over this period from when, you know, back in the 50s when I was born, where the summit of your aspirations was to get a good husband, and once you've achieved that marvellous status, to actually look after that husband. And that that was your role. And actually, during the time of the women's movement, things had really changed, and it was about, yes, getting married and having children, but also having a role in the world outside the home and working hard and caring about being successful at your job and being a breadwinner as well as a mother. And all these changes had taken place. And the media, which was completely male-dominated, I mean, the the press lobby in the House of Commons, which Ruth was in... Briefly. Briefly, probably, you know, one of, like, two or three women. Actually, when Parliament was 97% men, the lobby, which was the journalists who reported on Parliament, was 95% men. And it was kind of a boys' club. So they, they thought that our arguments were ridiculous. And, you know, we were pushing for change they were not sympathetic with. So they branded us all as Blair's babes. And especially they said that um, those women who'd been selected from all women shortlists were substandard. Now, actually... Nobody can remember now which were the women who were from all women shortlists and which were from open shortlists. I defy anybody to to remember that. You know, there's been exceptional women from open shortlists and exceptional women MPs from all women shortlists. So, you know, that was never a proper argument. But they branded the women from all women shortlists as substandard MPs um, and, you know, made out we were all frivolous Blair's babes, as they, as they call it. I think it. we should probably share with uh, the audience the fact that not only did you affect change in society at large, but you, you, know, but you had a, a, how shall I put it, a remarkably forward-looking household in your own right, because when Harriet was standing for the deputy leadership of the party, um, Jack, Harriet's husband, once in order to let her get to a meeting in Blackpool and a meeting in London, although he was in Bristol, drove from London to Bristol did his job, then went from Bristol to Blackpool, picked up Harriet and drove her through the night to London so she could go to both of these meetings. I think that was a remarkable new man. (laughs) Well, Jack was very, very different from my father's generation in that 
he believed in the ideology of the women's movement and believed that you know women should lead in the in the women's movement and you know was a hundred percent supportive of you know me taking that project being forward um, and so when I think back to my father's time I mean my mother had qualified as a barrister. She'd been to university, which was very, very unusual for women in those days, and qualified um, as a barrister. But once she'd achieved her real destiny, which was to marry my dad, her wig and gown, her barrister's wig and gown, was put in our dressing up box. When I look back on that, I think that's really, really tragic. And I, I remember one time, very specifically, once we'd all left home, uh, she started to requalify as a solicitor. And my dad at this point had retired, and I was back from uni and, and staying at home for a bit. And she was, he was sitting at the table with his newspaper, reading his newspaper. She was cooking his breakfast. There's a good thing about cooked breakfast in those days. This was kippers, God help us. And there was terrible smell emanating. But she was also cooking his supper at the same time because she was going to have to be at the College of Law during the day. So his supper needed to be ready. Was your father he paralyzed? was retired. Yes. No, he was, he, was, um, he was retired and it was her role. So she was cooking his supper. So the smell of kippers, awful smell of the curry that was being cooked for his cup, mingling. And she had a law book on the back of the stove. And sort of seeing her there and him there, I thought... This is not for me. Absolutely not. And I think that that was the thought of all of us looking at our mother's lives. We all thought we're going to do things differently. Um, and the expectations of men that somehow the wife should be there to serve them, for progressive men like Jack, my husband, the idea that you should have a subservient woman at the home was ideologically wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't all plain silly in the heart, because I remember one of the many things you did um, was an older women's commission, and then you fought very hard to get some of the findings from that put in a manifesto. And when the manifesto finally appeared, you said there were more commitments on football and animal rights than there were on older women. There were. I mean, we still, you know, we have gone so far compared to where we were. I mean, and the arguments are so much more accepted about it being wrong that the idea that men make all the decisions and women abide by them and that a woman's destiny is the man she supports. All of those things have changed massively and yet there is still, you know, women tearing their hair out because they can't get childcare. There is not an, une there is not an equal division of labour in the home between men and women looking after children or disabled relatives. Um, there's still unequal pay. So... I think actually, you know, we, we have to bear in mind that there is still a lot more progress that needs to be made. And that's one of the reasons I know that I shouldn't be mentioning the T word, Trump that is. But that is one of the reasons why this kind of reactionary, um, I don't call it kind of populism, it reminds me of the sort of arguments that were prevalent supporting hierarchy and misogyny and homophobia and xenophobia that was so prevalent in the 1950s, which we spent decades fighting against. And he is now legitimising those. My so friend. we still have a fight to not go back again. And can I just give you one example of what it was, and you'll all remember this time, the kind of casual racism and sexism, which was so vile and so virulent. So basically... 
when I was a member of parliament in, in the 1980s, we had Guy's Hospital in my constituency and they had a rag week, you know, which is like raising money for charities and all the students did it. And they had a rag magazine. And in the rag magazine, they had a joke section. And two of the jokes were these. One is, how do you get 100 Jews in a mini? One in the driving seat, 99 in the ashtray. And that was regarded as banter. Also, how do you stop a Pakistani spitting? Turn the grill down. Now, when I complained about this um, to the director of public prosecutions, I said it was inciting racial hatred, to the, to the chief executive of the hospital and everybody, I got an editorial written about me in the South London press saying I had no sense of humour. And that's what it was like. And that's what our generation fought for, not just a better economy where more people were employed, but against that sort of hatred that was around. And incidentally, I just discovered that Sarah Wollaston, who sadly is in the wrong political party because she's a Tory MP, although she's absolutely excellent, um, she chairs the Health Select Committee. And she was actually a student at Guy's at the time and totally agreed with me about how awful this was and heard all the students sounding off about how awful I was and I should shut up. So, you know, we've got to not forget how vile and grim it was in those days and how much we've done, but how much more we've got to do and we mustn't slip back. I mean, listening to you, you know, sort of being as passionate now as you were when you started, I have to ask you, twice, as I said in the introduction, when um, the chap said a bit of an accident, twice you took over as leader of the party. And um, there was a famous occasion when you, you know, um, took little William, William Hague at the dispatch box and wiped the floor with him. I did. I did. <laughs> and people were very happy about that for all kinds of reasons. However, um, you have to ask, or I have to ask you, were you never tempted just to stand yourself? And if not, why not? Well, I think that if you're a man coming into the House of Commons, all you really have to do is be like wearing a decent suit and make a halfway decent speech and everybody goes, leadership, potential. You know, starting with his mum and, you know, his constituency and everything. Everybody thinks quite easily about men in terms of leadership. But they don't... They didn't, certainly in those days think the same about women. It was really quite a surprise that we were members of Parliament at all, let alone leading the men in Parliament. And nobody'd ever, whilst they'd all assessed the leadership potential of my colleagues, nobody'd ever assessed my leadership potential. And when I ran for the deputy leader, everybody, I mean, I was like 22 to 1 outsider. Um, so nobody, there was not a sort of expectation that I would ever be in a leadership role. And in fact, it was a big shock to me when Gordon, after we'd lost the 2010 election, instead of staying in post to hand over to the new leader, said he was going to resign there and then after we left government. And I thought, my God, that means I'm the leader of the Labour Party as his deputy. I mean, it was that much of a shock. Um, and so the party at that point was absolutely more raw with defeat and seeing all the Tories sort of lording it over us and smirking on the ministerial ben benches as they planned to undo all the things that we'd been doing over the years. It was a very, very difficult and bad time for the party. And I did feel, my God, I'm leader at this point. 
I've got to really pull my finger out and do everything I can to make the party feel that it can hold its head high and that we do have a future and we're not kind of finished. But in a way, Harry, that's um, my point, because there you are, you are the leader of the party, albeit in difficult circumstances, you are the leader of the party. That is, in anybody's uh, book, pole position to but go for it. Except that I was... That was like I was putting everything into doing the acting leader thing, not about running myself for leader in you know after the for the during the leadership election. And as I went around the country, you know, going to regional Labour Party conferences and doing all the things I was doing, and you know, people would be like saying, "We're so pleased that you've done a really strong response to the budget, and you've done a good response to the Queen's speech. It makes us feel, you know, we can be proud to be Labour, although we've been smashed. Why don't you stand for leader?" And I kind of was very gratified by that and felt that it was very encouraging and supportive, but I didn't quite get it into my head that they actually meant, why don't you stand for leader? Somehow I was having a sort of, don't so you, focused on the acting Don't bit. you think a bloke would have had that into his head? I'm sure they would have, absolutely, they'd have thought deputy right next one up. And, you know, everybody was looking ahead to the next man who would be leader, who was going to be David Miliband, obviously. Um, and, you know, so I do think... Actually, I, you know, if, I'd have, if I would have run, bearing in mind the party had not obviously taken to David Miliband in the way that a lot of the media commentators thought. And this is quite interesting because I think... You. Well, I think, uh, you know, I didn't know who, who would get it of those that were, were standing. But I think that the media often does not understand what Labour Party members are going to do by way of elections. And they showed that in relation to Jeremy Corbyn twice they thought that David Miliband was going to be a shoe-in. I don't know why we keep looking at what's in the newspapers or commentators on Twitter about what Labour Party members think, because they so often are wildly out. It's interesting, though, seeing you've mentioned the Milibands, because you had, uh, at one point, Ed was your advisor and, and part-time scriptwriter and all of that, mm. um, and you were very close to Ed, mm. but when it came to that um, fraternal contest, you said that you were going to support Ed's brother. I didn't support anybody in that contest because I was the acting leader and therefore had to be completely neutral because I was presiding over the well, contest. Well, put it the wrong way, you weren't going to publicly support Ed to whom you'd been close. I wasn't going to publicly or privately support anybody. I was going to actually facilitate the contest where the Labour Party members and the process of the party operated and I wasn't going to use my position as acting leader to second-guess or interfere with um, the, the choice of the of the members so actually I stayed completely neutral and contented myself with thinking of all their different virtues they all had and just let them get out there and fight for the position what do you which think they would have did. happened if instead of if at the beginning of that process if you'd said well actually guys I'm going to throw my hat in the ring as well well, I think I probably would have got it. The people who don't think I would have done are the people who didn't think I'd get the deputy leadership anyway and always thought that I would be a complete outsider. And, you know, the people in the party didn't know me because I had been going around the country since 1982. You know, I knew the Labour Party family here in Scotland as well as in Wales, as well as in every region of England. And people knew I supported the good things that the Labour government had done. And they knew that I would like be getting out there on the telly speaking Labour thoughts. Do you regret thoughts. not going for it? Um, well, I don't really know, because it can't be known, whether or not, you know, I would have made a huge success of it or not done a good job for the Labour Party. So I think I would have only regretted it had I had a total certainty that I would have done a brilliant job 
Um, Nobody knows and, that, though. No, they don't, do they? Um, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, I didn't. And, uh, you know, I've, I feel actually... And there's a timeline in the book, at the back of the book, starting with the 80s. And above the timeline, there is all the things like, you know, introducing the national childcare strategy, abolishing the, the defence of provocation in domestic violence, doubling maternity pay and leave. And I'd never looked at it like that before, but when I did that timeline, I thought, actually, we did a whole load of things that the women's movement had fought for, and actually, the Labour government did them. And therefore, instead of wringing my hands thinking, if only I could have been, you know, leader, I actually think that it's worth thinking of all the progress that we did make, and there are a lot of great women in the Labour Party in Parliament who can take that forward. We're going to, we're going to let the audience in now, uh, Harriet, and there's, there's two, two mics there, and we'll get the lights up. I just should say in passing that um, it was interesting hearing you say that you know, Sarah Wollaston was, a, was a, a good thing because there was a time when you were so paranoid about the Tories that, that there's a piece <laughs> in the book where Harriet's newborn son, Harry, is in um, Westminster with her, and she's uh, coming along a corridor when she sees the Lady Thatcher, who wasn't then the Lady Thatcher, coming towards her, and she puts a blanket over Harry's face. And, <laughs> and I'm not sure what you expected to happen to her. Well, after, um, after uh, I had our first child and was absolutely besotted with him, you know, the way you are, but the most normal thing for a mother is if somebody's coming along and bearing down on your baby, you like show your baby because it is the most perfect thing in the world and you want them to admire it because it is a miracle. But... I so hated Thatcher and everything she was doing that it was almost like that Wicked Witch thing. I felt that if her eyes fell on my perfect baby, it would be a terrible thing. So I literally, I was probably quite a bit, you know, post-baby brain, Hormonal. probably, um, dashed into a, a, a little side room uh, so that her eyes would not fall upon him. <laughs> But Sarah Wollaston is not Margaret Thatcher. She is in the wrong party, as are a number of the young women who are daughters of the women's movement, who believe in childcare and public services and um, protecting rights of workers and things. So why are they in the Conservative Party? Uh, you know, they're just in transition, hopefully. <laughs> To us. Right, let's get some questions from the audience. There's two up there, there's three up there, in fact, so let's just take them in turn and then we'll enfranchise the other side. Just whatever order they get. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on PMQs, or perhaps I should say the culture of PMQs, because to the outsider, it sounds like uh, a lot of parliamentarians behaving very badly indeed. Um, I wonder if if you have any thoughts on whether it's the arrival of more women MPs that might make a difference to that or something else entirely? Well, it's such a, it's such a paradox, uh, PM's cues, because on the one hand, it is um, a lot of shouting and jeering and it's quite sort of sort of staged. It feels quite sort of um, like a pantomime. But on the other hand... It is quite important. Um, I mean, like after the general election in 2017, I mean, before the general election in 2017, Theresa May was going strong and stable, you know, Labour Party a shambles, and we were all sitting drooping in our seats and all her side were cheering. And after the general election in 2017, you could see how sort of 
you know, completely defeated she was in front of her own ranks. And it was nowhere clearer than in Prime Minister's questions. It is the moment where the leader of the party has to stand in front of their own side and show their own side that they can make a good argument and are doing a good job in the face of the other side. So it is quite telling and testing and important for that. I mean, I know it is a ridiculous pantomime in a way, and it's certainly terrifying for that reason to do it because... And when I first did it, when I was um, uh, deputy leader and we were in government um, and Gordon was having to be away on an international conference, so I was having to do it, I felt that I had to do it well because it would be the first time a woman had been at the dispatch box for the Labour Party answering Prime Minister's questions. And I didn't want to let, you know, all the sisterhood down. So I absolutely was determined to do it as well as I possibly could. So... I think it is important to have a weekly event, um, and but it is very gladiatorial. And one of the things that I think television doesn't uh, show you is how loud it is well, yes, and it how does. crowded it feels. You're standing there right at the front and banked up behind you. You can hardly hear yourself think. It is an absolute physical and mental ordeal. But sometimes leaders have got to kind of walk through the fire, haven't they, really? Have in you ever order... wondered, Harriet, how many hundreds of thousands of people switch the radio off at that point because they can't... Well, you know, I'm sure they do. Um, uh, but I can't... I mean, and I think, you know, if we ever did move the House of Commons to somewhere else, we would change it. I mean, obviously, it's different in Holyrood, isn't it? First Minister's questions. It's more of a semicircle, but there's quite a lot of... Roadiness. Shouty, shoutiness goes on there as well. Right. Let's take another question. It's quite unusual because in, in normal work, people don't sort of shout at each other, with, you know, <laughs> shouting slogans, you know. Uh, yes. Uh, hello, yes. Um, I was just wondering with respect to your um, uh, not standing for the... Uh, sorry. <laughs> not standing for the leadership, if it was maybe a combination of long-standing conditioning as a woman, you know, uh, your own internal responsibilities to your family, which you can't admit publicly, and the fact that having been acting leader and in effect leader for a period of time in the interim, that you just realised you really didn't want the buck to stop with you entirely. Hmm. <laughs> I think that's probably a, probably a very accurate summary. I mean, in a way, the fact that I was busy being acting leader at the time of the election, um, in a way, um, meant that I was doing that rather than having to think about standing for leader. But I mean, I had sort of virtual political vertigo when I was elected deputy leader. I mean, when the leadership, deputy leadership contest happened in 2007, when Gordon took over from Tony Blair, and I only went into it because it looked like we were going to have an all-male uh, competition. And I thought, this is absolutely ridiculous. A lot of us thought, this is crazy. You know, the party of women and equality, and we've got a man coming to be leader, and we've got only men to choose from as deputy. Somebody's, some woman's got to get into the race, and then it sort of ended up being me. But when I actually won it by, like, 0.3%, I did feel my God, I've overachieved here. I've, I did feel sort of political vertigo. It did feel like a really big step up. And it did feel like an important thing to be. Um, and, 
you know, perhaps I did spend my time looking to what I could do in the position I was in, rather than always looking upwards. Can I go up there? But that is probably quite a woman thing, isn't it? Get on with doing what you're doing, rather than like, oh my God, this is just a perch before I can jump off to do something else. We do be guilty of getting on with the job, whereas a lot of men in politics are wanting to get on with getting the next job and getting that person out of it so they can do it. It was a lovely quote that you, you quoted Alan Johnson, the, the, the man you oh, beat yeah. by nothing point three percent who said, and it's a lovely man, is Alan Johnson, yeah. he said, um, I thought I was the best man for the job and then a better woman came along. Yeah, but you see, Alan Johnson saying that, and he'd been the absolute runaway favourite and I'd been the runaway outsider, and as, as you said, just won by 0.3%, is that... A lot of his supporters were really bitterly disappointed and really resentful at me because I had no business to be winning because he was the popular outsider and, I mean, he was the popular insider and why on earth had I won? And what he was doing when he said that thing, when the, immediately all the cameras and the microphones rushed to him, what do you think about you didn't win it and Harriet Harman won it? And what he did is he, he more or less was sending a signal to, to all his supporters, right, Harriet's the deputy leader now, we all support her. And that was such a generous and um, unusual thing in politics. He immediately put aside his own disappointment and it's like we go forward and he left no room for his supporters in his name to have a go at me. And that's what I think David Miliband should have done when he lost to Ed Miliband, because what he should have said is, blimey, I thought I was the best brother, but it turns out that it wasn't the oldest one, it was this one. You know, he could have, he, he needed to disarm his supporters for the sake of the party. Um, and actually, I regret that I didn't say to him at that moment when we were all standing in the room, and Ed and David and Ed and etc were being given the result in that private room I should have stepped up to him and said right David this is a really big moment for you because actually Ed has won by a very narrow margin but he's won and the party's got to stay together so all your supporters you must bring them to Ed this is the moment for you to do a very big thing in politics but it didn't occur to me that he wouldn't do that and I think that when we went to the meeting of the PLP, or at least the PLP reception at conference, and all the members of the Parliamentary Labour Party were there, and as Ed Miliband walked through, a whole load of David Miliband supporters, MPs, turned their back on him. And that made Ed Miliband's job harder. And actually, David should have... If he'd have done what Alan Johnson would have done, we'd have had a more united chance and of course that enabled the press then to slag off Ed Miliband you know implying that David would have been better so I think that Alan was quite is a remarkable politician he's thinks of the bigger picture he's politically very very generous. I know there's somebody else up there but I'd like to get somebody from over here there's a panda up over there thank you then we'll come back back over here and there might be somebody in the middle as it were Thanks. Um, I'm really interested, Harriet, in your thoughts on leadership. Um, it strikes me that the model of leadership that politics kind of reflects, in England at least, um, of sort of hero leader, as opposed to what I'm, I think, and lots of others are increasingly interested in relational leadership, which demands of yourself that you don't think you own the truth. 
And I sort of wonder if that's behind some of your challenges in stepping up and what you think the chances are for women, but also men that would rather behave in a relational way um, are in politics and generally in, in society. Well, I completely agree. I think that is a very insightful and important point. And I think we've just made it worse with all these metropolitan mayors because they are the hero leader for a whole region. And the whole point about the women's movement, it was an argument about how you make change for the better and you do it by way of the collective. You do it by way of the team. You don't do it by way of the one leader, the hero. Um, and that's why there are not really, you know, people often ask me, you know, who are the heroines of the women's movement? But the point about the women's movement is it was not all us looking up to somebody on a pedestal. It was us looking side to side to each other. It was about the peer group, not about the person who was better, but about us all being better because of us working collectively. And that's where our strength and our wisdom lay. So there is a problem about the mode of leadership and I'm sure it happens in all sorts of companies and businesses and professions as well but it's very exposed in politics and it is a very uh, male hero model and it's not just that women are unlikely to fit into that unless they're Margaret Thatcher who's doing it by beating the men at their own game but actually it's arguable that that's not a good model for actually doing things and doing them well um, so I completely agree with you, and that's why we should have no more metropolitan mayors, because that is the opposite I've, of um, I've given, the team. I've given the mic to a gentleman, because unusually for the, an audience at the book festival, we've had a slew of women, and we need a token man. <laughs> Careful what you say now. Be afraid. Well... Um, Theresa May probably regrets answering the question what was the naughtiest thing she ever oh, did. Oh. However, I'm Back gonna, to the 1950s, no, yeah. I'm going to flip it on its head and ask you, what would you say was your best moment in the House of Commons and what would be your legacy? Um, well, I think my best moment in the House of Commons was undoubtedly that first Prime Minister's Questions, where William Hague had often beaten Tony Blair at Prime Minister's Questions. He was the absolute consummate master of the house. Very clever, very witty, very quick on his feet. And all the press gallery was saying I was going to fall flat on my face and that I wasn't you know, good in the house and didn't know how to do the house. And actually, with a combination of fantastic team helping me working it out in advance, and you know, it just, it literally turned the tables on him. Um, so that was definitely my best um, uh, moment in the house. And as far as legacy is concerned, I think in a way it is, it is a shared legacy. It is the legacy of the women's movement and all of people who are, you know, women of my age, whether they were in the professions, whether they were in the trade union movement, whether they were in public services, whether they were in private business, we were all part of that generation who said, we are going to try and do things differently um, and we want things to change. Oh, there's a junior member of the uh, audience here. Um, and therefore, I think that if you look at the transformation in the possibility for women's lives between when I was a young girl and now, I think... It was an immensely exciting thing to be part of that generation 
Um, and that is the legacy of our whole generation, not just me. Although for a while, I did be like the political wing of the women's movement because I was in there and we'd done so badly the other women didn't join us. But I'll just mention one thing and see whether any of you remember this. Um, Germaine Greer, who'd written The Female Eunuch, was doing a thing in Columbia University in New York and it was being televised. And this was like, um, oh, the 1970s or something. And I remember seeing it on television because there were all these, you know, male students, frightfully glossy and frightfully entitled and, you know, intellectual. And she'd done a speech and one of them in the question and answer session said to her, oh, I don't know what it is you really want. And she said, I can't do an Australian action. I can't do American one either. But she, she said, I don't know either, honey, but sure as hell, it ain't you. And I was like, I was like, it was like such a moment of shock because we had been brought up to please men. And here she was saying, is, it was like not seeking the approval of men. And that was like such a big thing is that we could be what we could be, not have to just be seeking men's approval. And the legacy for all of us is to not be within the confines of our mother's generations, who, if they were working, as Ruth said, often would be working-class women working bloody hard, six days a week, getting really low paid, because their work was just not valued because it wasn't work that was in the home. That was Sadly, we're out of time, but I should say to the guys in the audience that the term women, of course, embraces men. <laughs> Think about it. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, ladies and gentlemen, Harriet Happily is going to stay with us for a while in the signing tent. It's this book for anybody, well, actually for anybody, whether you're interested in politics or not, but for anybody who is interested in politics, it's an absolute cracking read. So she'll be in the signing tent, which is left and left again, and she'll be able to chat you there and sign copies of the book. But please join me in thanking Harriet Harman. Podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for EdBookFest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.